Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is grass, is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord, it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Thanks so much, uh, Batch and Holly. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, Let me just follow up uh, real quick before we start uh, with the sermon this morning on something that Batch and Holly prayed for, which are our ministry partners uh, at Gethsemane Garden Christian Center um, in Kenya. This is a wonderful ministry uh, that we've been partnered with for some time, uh, essentially running an orphanage and a school uh, there in a small island community in Kenya. And we prayed for Naftali, their founder, um, who has been uh, battling prostate cancer and uh, his deal with it metastasizing some. So we want to continue to lift up Naftali in your prayers. Um, also, something to think of is that the center was, has been closed down due to coronavirus concerns and the kids are uh, home um, or, uh, or kind of not there at the orphanage currently. And so um, we want to pray that they're able to get back uh, to open their school up again soon. And, um, and also, we have uh, taken part in a program there where we adopt one of the children, a little girl named Brittany. And in the past, we've done things as a church where we've written uh, letters and sent gifts. And since they're not uh, at the center currently, we can't do that uh, in one big mailing, but they have given us instructions on how we can write her. 
And so um, we encourage you to do that. It's been in the email the past several days. You should have uh, gotten some updates on that. Encourage you, especially kids in the church, uh, to write to Brittany and uh, just connect with her a little bit about what it's been like for you going through coronavirus time and some of those things and uh, just offer her your love and prayers. So uh, lift up Gethsemane Garden uh, to, your, uh, to your thoughts and prayers. Well, our scripture uh, this morning, the, the reading that Holly did began in verse 13 with this word, therefore, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. And uh, we've said before that whenever you run into a therefore in the Bible, you ought to ask what it's therefore, uh, what is the purpose of that therefore? Therefore is a word that points us ahead about what's just been written or said, uh, and then points us forward to what's about to be written or said. And so in this context, it's Peter saying, in light of all of these other things that I've just told you about who you are and who God is, therefore do the following. And so uh, I do think it's important for us uh, to kind of revisit a little bit of where we are in First Peter, what he said up to this point, since our last couple of sermons have been a little more occasional and topical in nature. I uh, want to look and rem remember what Peter has said up to this point. Remember in uh, 1 Peter 1.1, Peter addresses the Christians in Asia Minor, uh, cities like Galatia and Cappadocia, think uh, modern-day Turkey. Uh, he addresses them as the elect exiles in their dispersion. He's saying to them that this he is writing to a Christian community that spread out in the cities of the Roman Empire, living out their lives as a faithful minority. They did not have much cultural power or cachet. They were not well-liked or well-respected by their neighbors. They were often looked down upon. And so he says that you're living in a type of exile as a minority community in these cities. So they're elect exiles. And then verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so Peter has said that you are a minority community, you're an exile community, but at the same time, you're a community of living hope. Though you are small in number and little in influence, You've been born again into this new and living hope that he tells us a little later on in chapter one uh, causes you to radiate what he, what he says is an inexpressible joy that is yours in Jesus. And so those two things help to set up Peter's word to his churches and his word to us as well in God's word through him. That we are, that his readers were, exiles, a minority outpost but who were living with this radioactive hope and joy. They were an outpost in their cities of new life, an, outpo an outpost of hope and life and new creation joy. That was who they were. And so now Peter says to these exiles, to these hopeful exiles, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's that word hope again, which we're going to see is a significant theme to Peter. But he says, set your hope fully on Jesus Christ. I love this, this encouragement. It's to, to put all of your chips 
into the center of the table and to put them all on Jesus, to put all of your eggs in that one basket. And this flies so in the face of what we might think of as contemporary received wisdom that tells us to hedge our bets, to diversify our portfolio. And yet Peter says, no, 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 set your heart fully on Jesus Christ. Don't set some of your hopes on Jesus and then reserve these other hopes spread out over your career or your finances or your family. For his readers, uh, the success or failure of the Roman Empire. For us, our, our reputation, our wealth. But to take your hopes and set them fully on the Lord Jesus. What would it look like for someone to put all of their hopes in Jesus Christ? all of the loyalty and aspirations of their hearts on Jesus and on nothing else. What would that look like in your life or in my life? Well, we're going to see today a one-word definition of what such a person would look like. Uh, and that word is holy. Holy. That for someone to set their entire hearts wholly on Jesus would lead them to becoming a holy person, a saint. Someone whose life reflects the moral and ethical beauty of God himself. That's why uh, Peter, to encourage his readers in this direction, quotes uh, from Leviticus when he says, starting in verse, verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's a direct quote from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. But it's also a refrain of Leviticus. Leviticus is a book about holiness. Over and over again in Leviticus, uh, Moses gives some iteration of those words that God's people Israel were meant to be holy because the God with whom they were in covenant was holy. That all of his commandments for them were meant to be so that their life, their life together and their life as individuals, reflected his holiness into their world. They were meant to be an outpost of holiness. A world, uh, in a world that was governed by belief in many gods, Right, if you think about the religious practices of Israel's neighbors, they were a scary set of practices, including things like child sacrifice, worshiping multiple gods, gods of the harvest and gods of war. And yet God says to his people, no, no, you're not to be like that. In that kind of world, that kind of barbaric world, you were called to be a people of holiness. He says in Leviticus 18, you shall not do what they do in the land of Egypt where you used to live. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, into which I'm bringing you. You shall not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and my decrees. So to be holy uh, is to be called out and separate. It's to be unique. And it's to somehow reflect the moral character of God in the world, something of his truth, beauty, and goodness. It's that, uh, that idea that echoes in our mission statement as a church, that we view it as our goal to see and to display the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus in our city. 
We want to see the truth, beauty, and goodness of God so that we might reflect it more fully in our world. Now, Israel knew that this was not perfect, right? That God was holy in a way that they never would be, but that they were to approximate it in their life uh, and in their life together. And so Peter says that though you are a church in exile, though you're surrounded by neighbors who don't believe like you believe or live like you live, that just like Israel in the Old Testament, you're meant to be a holy people, holy as God is holy, more formed by God and his, uh, his uniqueness, his righteousness and his holiness, than you are shaped by the culture around you. That they were meant to be a, a counterculture of holiness in their world, different than their neighbors for the sake of their neighbors, marked by God's character, as an example of what this looks like, we might just think of the Ten Commandments. Worshiping God and God alone, not making idols of God, keeping the Sabbath honorable and holy, building families of love and loyalty, honoring and protecting life and not taking it, living with chastity and faithfulness and honesty and generosity and righteousness, holy as God is holy. So friends, that is true of God's people um, in uh, Israel on verge of possessing the promised land when Leviticus was written. It was true of Peter's audience living in the shadow of the Roman Empire as a community of exiles. And friends, it's true of you and me today as well. Living in the middle of Jacksonville, Florida or wherever it is uh, that God has placed you. Living, uh, seeking to live a life marked by holiness. A French Catholic writer of the last century named Leon Bloy writes this. I love this, this idea. He says, the only real sadness, the only real failure, the only great tragedy in life is not to become a saint. The only great tragedy in life is the tragedy of not becoming a saint of not cultivating holiness in our lives. And so the question comes to us, is sainthood, is holiness, moral and ethical beauty, the goal of your life above all else? Because Bloy says, and I think this is echoing Peter, that the most important thing about you is your holiness, is your growth in the character and likeness of God himself becoming holy as he is holy. Your growth in holiness ought to be the defining goal of your life. If you're a parent, the goal of your parenting ought to be the holiness of your children, not their grades or their SAT scores, not how well they do in sports, but their growth in holiness. If you're single, the number one characteristic for a spouse should not be wealth or looks of sense or sense of humor, but holiness. Are you looking for a man or a woman who reflects something of God's holiness when you look? If you're married, your great aspiration for your marriage should be to help one another to grow more holy as God is holy. And as a pastor, the growth that I should seek in our church above all else should be the growth of holiness in our congregation. Okay, let's have an honest conversation about holiness. Um, be honest, at least with yourself, uh, when you hear those words, be holy as I am holy, 
what comes to mind? Likely, uh, it's not something altogether inspiring, right? Leviticus is an entire book about holiness, which probably owes something has something to do with its lack of popularity uh, in the Christian world, right? When I think of holiness, we typically think of the things that we avoid doing to avoid contamination on ourselves, right? We think of the habits or practices that we don't do. We think about the things that we abstain from. The image of holiness very often is a long, dowered-faced person standing at a judgmental distance from the rest of the world, feeling smug and secure in his or her own holiness. We have a decent amount of work to do ahead of us if we are going to reclaim the biblical vision of holiness. A vision of holiness that has less to do with keeping stuff out than it does with radiating beauty out to our world. That has less to do with keeping the world out of us than it does with shining the radiant life and love of Jesus into the world. If we're ever going to reclaim a vision of holiness that's life-giving, we have to start with the recognition uh, that I think does fly in the face of how we often think of it. That God wants holiness for us because he wants joy for us, right? God wants holiness for you because he wants joy in you, right? And, And I can think of this when I think of what sin has brought into my life. If I look at the misery and pain that, co- that has come from sin and addiction in my life, right? Then I can start to imagine, well, what would my life be like if it was free? Free from, from sin and its guilt and its misery and its compulsions and its shame. Well, that would be a life of holiness. It'd be a life no longer marked and defined by guilt and shame, but instead marked and defined by the image of God, marked by holiness. Secondly, we have to see if we're going to reclaim holiness in a life-giving way and to think rightly about it, is to recognize that the Christian definition of holiness is Christ-likeness, right? To be holy is to be like Christ. He is the only person that's ever modeled and lived a truly holy life. Peter addresses his, his audience here as obedient children. And Christ is the only truly obedient child of the Father. And so if we want to know what holiness is and what holiness looks like, it looks like Jesus. right? To grow in holiness is to grow in the image and likeness of Jesus. It's to begin, Dallas Willard described discipleship, as learning to live your life as Jesus would live it if he were living your life. right? It's to start to be marked by his love and his compassion and his mercy in his righteousness, and his love, and his generosity. It's to start to bear the mark of Jesus in our life. So holiness is conformity to the life of Christ. And it's our destiny. John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, when we see him, we shall be like him. Right? That everyone who trusts in Jesus will one day be remade in the image of Jesus, marked by his holiness. And our vision is to live that destiny here and now in this life. Holiness is about Christian identity before it's about Christian behavior. Holiness is about Christian identity before it's about Christian behavior. 
Look, uh, we're in a transitional section of First Peter here. Peter is going to get into the nitty gritty of where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life, right? A lot of the, the subsequent chapters of First Peter are going to get very granular and detailed when he starts talking about how Christians ought to live. He's going to talk about how Christians live in relation to their government and in relation to their neighbors. He's going to talk about how Christians live in marriages and in families. He's going to talk in great detail about how Christians should live in the church. But before he gets into that, before he gets into Christian behavior, he deals with Christian identity. Because for the Christian, what you do flows out of who you are. And so holiness of behavior flows out of holiness of character and holiness of identity. And so holiness is before anything else. It is a posture of Christian identity. You know, Peter and Paul, in writing their letters, their favorite way to describe their, their audience, the way they address their letters, is usually to the saints, to the holy ones. And it's remarkable that they do this without reference to the behavior of those very Christians. Right. Think about uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, a church that reflected so much of the culture around it, a church that was a mess with sexual immorality, uh, with the pride of the wealthy and their prejudice against the poor. It was a divided church. It was a, a church with all kinds of dysfunction in its worship and in its sacraments. And yet Paul doesn't address them as sinners. He addresses them as saints. He does the same in Galatia when he's writing to a church that's uh, being torn apart by cultural prejudice and self-righteousness. He addresses them not as sinners, but as saints. And that gets at a deep truth that, that sainthood, saintliness, holiness is an identity to be received, not one to be achieved. Right? It's not an identity that we earn. It's an identity that is bestowed on us. And Peter gets at this. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Hear what he's saying. He's saying you are holy in Jesus because of the holiness of Jesus. Right? You're holy, not because you're good, not because you're righteous, not because you reflect God's character, but you're holy because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who like a lamb without fault, without spot or defect, was given to you. Right? So this is the way of Christian holiness, receiving holiness from God by faith, not achieving holiness through our own moral effort. You might think of it like this. God doesn't love you because you are like Jesus. He loves you because you are in Jesus. God doesn't love you because you're like Jesus. He loves you because you're in Jesus. Our hope of eternal life is not because we consistently do what Jesus would do. Our hope of eternal life is because we are covered by Jesus. We are in him and he is in us. And so therefore God looks on us as holy. So the call to pursue holiness is one to, is essentially God saying, you are holy in Jesus. Now, therefore, live a holy life. Be who I've already called you to be. Be who you are. So holiness is something that is received, 
not something achieved. And now, because we like rhyming things, we'll see that it's not just a status that you receive, it's also a new life that is conceived in you. So not receive, I mean, receive, not achieved, and it is something that is conceived in you. And we see this here in verse 23. Peter tells his readers that you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. He says that this holiness is something that's birthed in you through the new birth. As he said earlier in verse 3, you've been born again to a living hope. This language of being born again is, is Peter's way of saying, and it resonates deeply with what Jesus says in the Gospels as well as what uh, Paul argues in his letters, is that new life has to come from outside of you in by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in be creating belief in our hearts, receiving the Gospel. Right, That holiness is a new life birthed in you. Because apart from that, we were unable to live a holy life. There is nothing in me, there's nothing in you that wants to or is powerful enough or good enough or able enough to live a holy life. Right? Israel's problem, remember we, we said they were called to be holy as God is holy. Called to live among their neighbors as a beacon of holiness. And the problem wasn't with the call. The problem wasn't with the moral law. The problem wasn't with the temple. The problem wasn't with the call to be holy. The problem was with their ability to do it, right? That, that they could not live up to the law that had been given to them. And so we start to hear hints in the prophets that the problem all along isn't with the law, but that the law remained outside of the people. And so prophets like Ezekiel begin to look forward to the day when God would take his law and by his spirit, write it on the hearts of his people. That it would go from being an external constraint to something that's birthed in us, a desire born of a new heart to love and honor God. You know, so much of what Jesus dealt with in his earthly life was uh, with the Pharisees, who largely would have agreed with Peter. Right When, when Peter says, be holy as I am holy, when he says in your life of exile, you're meant to model God's holiness. The Pharisees would have read that and said, yes, amen, that is good. Because what the Pharisees understood their role to be was to get God's people to live holy lives in the midst of their life occupied by Rome, in the midst of a life uh, governed by this foreign culture, that they were to live a life of holiness eating kosher and keeping the Sabbath and doing all that God's law required so that God would return and set them free uh, through his Messiah. And so the problem with the Pharisees wasn't that they had this, the wrong goal. They had much the same goal that Moses had in Leviticus, much the same goal that Peter has here. But what Jesus said of them was he called them whitewashed tombs, right? That's a, a powerful image. Just think of a grave. You do all the work to shine and polish the outside so it looks pretty. But on the, on the inside, it's rotting death. And he says, Jesus is saying that that is true of all attempts at holiness that try to work from the outside in. 
right? All the, all the attempts at holiness that start with modifying our behavior. And friends, just I know that we all have stories of this in our own life, right? We all have those things that we say, God, I promise I'm never going to do this again. Those things we say, God, I, I, I absolutely promise I'm never going to do it again if I, I'm going to try hard enough. And if you answer this prayer, I promise that I'll never drink again, or I'll never look at that website again, or I'll never lose my temper again, or I'll never, whatever the behavior is. But outside in behavior change doesn't work because of our broken hearts, because of our sinful hearts. And Peter says that you are born again. You need to, you need to receive new life in order to empower a new heart to live a holy life from the inside out. What does it take to begin this life? Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. This is a kind of a tricky phrase, but obedience to the truth here simply means faith. Obedience to the truth means that you receive a message as true as faithful, and you want to order your life behind it. You want to submit to that truth. And that simply is the, the biblical depiction of faith. That faith is receiving something as true and placing your trust, your hope in it, to set your hopes fully on Jesus Christ uh, as we began this passage. So holiness, as we've talked about it, receiving the new life from Jesus, receiving his holy status instead of your own, God loving you because you're in Jesus, not because you're like Jesus. All of that is, is built simply on faith. What Peter says in conclusion, the word was the good news that was preached to you. Friends, if you want to know that you're holy, if you want to know that God looks on you as righteous and acceptable and beloved, all that he requires, the only obedience necessary, is obedience to the truth of the gospel. To say, God, what you've said about me is true. I'm a sinner in need of salvation. I'm not holy, but I want to receive your holiness in me and through me. It's a beautiful, holy life that begins when we begin to step out of our sin and to receive God's grace. If you haven't done so, today would be a beautiful day to be free of the compulsion and defining power of sin in your life and to step into a new life marked by holiness and peace through faith in Jesus. But holiness, though it begins in who we are, it's a status that we receive, it's a new life that's conceived, it does issue out in a changed life. It does change what we do. It begins to change our behavior. And so I, want to, I do want to conclude just by looking at what it takes to live a life of increasing holiness. Remember, holiness is Christ-likeness, increasing Christ-likeness. The first thing is that holiness takes the right motivation. There's all kinds of wrong reasons uh, to pursue spiritual growth and holiness, and only one truly right reason. Look at verse 14. Peter says, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As obedient children, right? Holiness, uh, obedience to God is motivated by our love for our Heavenly Father, 
right? Children obey their parents out of love and respect for their parents. They don't obey, they don't obey so that they'll become children of their parents. They don't obey so that their parents won't disown them. They obey out of love. And Peter's saying, in that same way, you ought to obey your father. You don't obey your father so that he'll love you. You obey your father because he loves you. You don't obey your father so that he won't disown you. You obey your father because you know that he would never disown you. Because there's nothing inside you or outside of you, nothing you could ever do or say that would cause your father to release his love from you. And so the sufficient motivation for pursuing a life of Christ-likeness is love for the Father. It's the same love that motivated Jesus himself. There's only two reasons uh, that, that people will do things that we would view as holy. Only two reasons that you would get up and go to church. Only two reasons that you would get up and read your Bible. Only two reasons that you would give to the poor. One reason is so that God will love you. It's, a, it's the self-righteous quest to earn God's favor. And the other is out of gratitude, the acknowledgement that you have the love and grace of your Father. And so Peter says, obey out of the right motivation as obedient children. Holiness takes the right motivation. Holiness also takes practice. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Preparing your minds for action. The Greek of this phrase is actually quite odd. Uh, he says, gird up the loins of your mind. I prefer the translation, prepare your minds for action. Um, but the idea was, what does it mean to gird up your loins? Uh, it means to prepare for a race, right? It means to prepare yourself to run, to engage in an athletic competition. So not to, not to wear the long flowing togas that were, that were customary, but to be girded up and ready for action. And holiness, which is action, right? Holiness is, uh, finds its expression in our lives, in our actions. Peter says you've got to be prepared, right? You can't wait until the moment of decision. You can't wait until the moment when your faith is being tested to decide what you think or what you want to do. You need to be prepared. And this is where the habits and disciplines of the Christian life come in, right? So, uh, spending your, your, your time in prayer. Filling your mind with God's word, waking up and starting your day in communion with your father is so that it's preparing your mind. It's, it's disciplining your life for the sake of holiness. Think about uh, that great story. Uh, we all remember the, uh, the uh, Captain Sully Sullinger, right? The man who landed uh, the Boeing 737 on the Hudson River. Right? He, he, he took off in a plane and geese flew into the, the engine and he had to think quickly to land the plane. He was prepared for action because he had prepared his entire life. He knew the plane. He knew how to fly. He knew the technology. He knew what it could do. His mind was prepared to live it out and take action when the moment required it. And Peter says in the same way, prepare your life, prepare your heart and your mind for holy living and holy action. And then finally, holiness leads to cultural countercultural freedom. I love this in verse 18. Actually, I'll start on I'll start in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile 
knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. He's saying you've been set free. That's what ransomed means. It's, a, it's the word of liberation. You've been, your, you've, your freedom has been purchased so that you're no longer a slave to what he calls the ways of your forefathers. Remember, this was at a time when all Christians were first-generation Christians. Uh, we believe that most of Peter's audience had, uh, came from Gentile uh, conversions. So these were people who were raised in Roman and Greek paganism. And Peter says, you've been set free from, that, from those ways. You've been ransomed from the ways of your forefathers, so you no longer have to be defined by the culture around you. You can live a countercultural life free from the pressures and assumptions of the surrounding world around you. Guys, there is nothing harder. In fact, it's impossible uh, to live a life free of the influence of your surrounding culture. I'm reminded of the, the story. David Foster Wallace, a uh, great novelist, uh, tragically took his life, uh, gave a graduation speech at Kenyon University. And he started with a story of two young fish uh, swimming by, uh, swimming in the water, and they swim by an older fish. And the older fish turns and says, hey, how's the water today, fellas? And they swim on past, and they turn to each other. And one says, what the heck is water? And Wallace tells the story to say that water uh, is the thing that's so pervasive that you don't even notice it, right? The fish don't even know what water is because it's all they've ever known. And he leverages that story to talk about the unquestioned assumptions that we have about the world around us, uh, simply because it's all we know. It's the world we inherit. It's the world that we live in. And to a degree, uh, everyone is a product of their culture. Right? This is true in the church as well as outside the church. That we're uh, a product in so many ways of the assumptions of our culture. But the call of holiness and the only way to ever escape from the bondage of unreflective, uncritical embrace of our culture is to have a reference point that's outside of our culture by which we measure our lives. And that's what Peter says here when he says, live out your exile in holy fear. It doesn't mean to be afraid of God. It means to live your life as though God is your reference point beyond the assumption and pressures of your culture so that you actually have a point of leverage to begin to critique and question what your culture assumes is normal. And this would have been absolutely necessary for the, these first century believers in a world that defined um, everything differently than them. They would have uh, defined sexuality in a way that was very, very different than they were learning to in Jesus. They would have uh, defined power and money and all of those things in completely different ways. That they now had a new reference point in order to live as a life-giving counterculture within the culture. Far too often Christians have settled for being a subculture. Right, A subculture is a group of people that has their own uh, languages and jokes and art forms, uh, that has their own culture, that lives to the side of the prevalent culture. That's not what a counterculture is. Right, A subculture isn't a counterculture. A counterculture actually means to transform the larger culture. It means to begin living in a certain way so that eventually as you live in that way, the rest of the larger culture will begin to look at it and to begin to want it. And friends, that is the call on our lives, a holy people in an unholy world. 
living countercultural lives of freedom in a world of bondage, a people of chastity and fidelity in a world of lust, a people of love and respect in a world of slander and polarization, a people of equity and fairness in a world of prejudice, a people who honor and protect life in a world of death, a people who give generously in a world marked by greed. That's who we're called to be, holy as God is holy. It's kind of as a last application point. Uh, let me speak uh, for just a moment to the fathers uh, out there. This, what I'm going to say is as true to the mothers, uh, but on Father's Day, I'll, I'll speak to the dads a bit. You notice that Peter says here that you've been set free from what was inherited from your forefathers, right? Because remember, these are first-generation Christians who had to unlearn much of what their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers told them. And so what Peter knew was that if the known world was going to be evangelized and brought uh, within the scope of the gospel, it was going to take a break from the ways of what their fathers had taught them. Our great goal as Christian fathers is that our children won't have to break from the ways that they learned from their fathers in order to live a life of Christ-like. Right, that we would actually, uh, as fathers, begin to impart a countercultural holiness into our children, a vision for life that is deeper and bigger and wider and more beautiful and more good than anything that this world offers. And so that we would begin to shape them in such a way uh, that they can have a real and lasting influence in our world as they're formed more in the image of Christ than in the image of their culture. Dads, that is a hard job. That is a hard job. It only can happen as we lean on Jesus ourselves, right? As we begin to live out of our identity as his holy sons and begin to train and impart and form our children in that way. Peter knew that that was what it was going to take to evangelize the known world uh, in his day. And I think it's true uh, that the defining call on our lives, if Peter's call was to evangelize the known world for the first time, I think most of our calling can be thought of as re-evangelizing a secular West, right? To, to bring the gospel back in to a, to a world that's largely lost it as a reference point. And friends, that is a multi-generation project. Uh, it's one in which we won't see the fruit of it uh, in our lifetime, but we hope to in our children's and our grandchildren's and our great-grandchildren's. And it, take, it takes us honoring that call to be holy as our God is holy, as the Christ who clothes us with his holiness is holy, as the Holy Spirit who breathes new life in us is holy. We too can be holy. Let's pray. Father, we confess our lack of holiness. We confess our waywardness. We confess um, that our eyes and our minds and our hearts are on so many different things. But Lord, we pray that we would come to love what you love, that we would come to mourn what you mourn, that we would come to rejoice in what brings you joy. And Lord, we do pray that in all of our vocations, in all of our work, in all of our relationships, in all of our labor, uh, that we would seek holiness uh, above all. Lord Jesus, help us to live out of who you've named us to be. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.